Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami This is um, chapter 9 in this collection. This is um, originally from the book Jitta Viveka, and this is called The Practice of Metta. I'd like to talk about the practice of metta, a meditation which most people will find very useful. Metta is generally translated as loving-kindness. This may be too big a word, because we tend to think of loving-kindness as grand and wonderful, and sometimes we cannot generate that kind of love for everything. The English word love is often misused. We say, I love to eat fish and chips, when what we mean is, I like to eat fish and chips. Christians talk about Christian love. This means loving your enemies. It doesn't mean liking them. How can you like your enemies? But we can love them, which means that we will not do... We will not do anything to harm them. We will not dwell in aversion towards them. You can be kind to your enemies, kind towards people who are not very nice to you, who insult you and who wish you harm. They may be unpleasant people whom you cannot like, but can love. Metta is not a superman's love. It's the very ordinary ability just to be kind and not dwell in aversion towards something or someone. If a man walked into this room right now, drunk, ugly, diseased, stinking, cursing and swearing. We could not even consider liking him, but we could be kind to him. We wouldn't have to punch him in the nose, curse him and force him out of the room. We could invite him in, give him a cup of tea. We can be kind. We can do something for someone who is repulsive and disgusting in some way. When we think to ourselves, I can't stand that man, get him out of here, he's disgusting. It becomes impossible to be kind and we create suffering around what is unpleasant to us. There's a great lack of metta in the world today because we've overdeveloped our critical faculties. We constantly analyze and criticize. We dwell on what is wrong with ourselves, with others, with the society we live in. Metta, however, means not dwelling in aversion, but being kind and patient even to what is bad, evil, foul or terrible. It's easy to be... (coughs) It's easy to be kind to nice animals like kittens and puppies. It's easy to be kind to people that we like, such as sweet little children, especially when they're not ours. It's easy to be kind to old ladies and men when we don't have to live with them. It's easy to be kind to those who agree with us politically and philosophically and who do do not threaten us in any way. It's much more difficult to be kind to those that we don't like, who threaten us or disgust us. That takes much more endurance. First, we have to start with ourselves. So in traditional Buddhist style, we always start the practice of metta by having metta for ourselves. This does, not mean to, this does not mean that we say, I really love myself, I really like me. When we practice metta towards ourselves, we no longer dwell in aversion to ourselves. We extend kindness to ourselves, to our conditions of body and mind. We extend kindness and patience even to faults and failings, to bad thoughts, moods, Anger, greed, fears, doubts and jealousies, delusions, all that we may not like about ourselves. When I first went to England, I asked the Buddhist people there whether they practiced metta. They said, no, can't stand it. It's so false. We're supposed to go around saying, I like myself, I love myself, may I be happy. It's so soppy, wet, foolish. I really don't feel like it. It seems so false and superficial. On that level, it sounded a bit silly to me too, until I realized that it wasn't taught in the right way and had become a sentimental, cosmetic covering up of things. People in England could not go along with that, 
they'd rather sit and analyze themselves, looking at their faults and exaggerate them out of all proportion. They thought they were being honest with themselves. But practicing metta towards ourselves means we stop trying to find all our weaknesses, faults and imperfections. Often when you have a bad mood or start to feel depressed, you think, here I go again, I'm worthless. When this happens, have metta for the depression itself. Don't make a bad thing out of it. Don't complicate it. Be at peace with it. Coexist peacefully with depression, fears, doubts, anger or jealousy. Don't create anything around them and aversion. Sorry, don't create anything around them with aversion. Last year, a woman came to ask me about depression. She said, I suffer from depression on occasions. I know it's bad, I know I shouldn't, and I want to know what to do about it. I really don't want it. I want to get rid of it. What do you suggest? Now, what is wrong with depression? You think you should never feel depressed because you have an idea that there's something wrong. Something wrong with you for being that way. But sometimes life just isn't very pleasant. It can be downright depressing. You can't expect life to be always pleasant, inspiring and wonderful. I know how depression arises when there are unhappy things and unpleasant scenes around. I saw a lot of it in my first year in England. After living in a warm, sunny country like Thailand, where the people have great respect for monks, always addressing them as Venerable Sir, giving them things and treating them as if they were terribly important, I found that in England some people treat monks as if they're crazy. London isn't sunny and smiling. It can be drizzling and cold, and people aren't interested in you at all. They look at you and then they turn away without giving you a smile. In Thailand, life is so simple and easy for a Buddhist monk. We had nice forest monasteries in natural surroundings and our own little huts among the trees. In London, we were cooped up in a little house day after day, kept indoors by the drizzling rain and cold. <laughs> so, all the monks began to feel depressed and negative. We would just go through the motions of being monks. We'd get up at 4am, go to the shrine room, do a little chanting, get that over with, and then sit in meditation for a while, drink tea, go out for a walk. Just going through the motions. We weren't putting energy into anything that we were doing. We were becoming caught up in that which was depressing. There was also a lot of friction with problems in the group which had invited us to England and a lot of personality clashes and misunderstandings. When I reflected on this, I began to see that I was becoming caught up in the unpleasant things that were happening around me. I was creating negative feelings around them. I was wishing I was back in Thailand, wishing the unpleasant things would go away, wishing it wouldn't be the way it was, worrying about people and wishing they were otherwise. I began to realize that I was dwelling in aversion on the unpleasant things around me. A lot of unpleasant things were happening, and I was creating aversion around them all. I was complicating them. I was complicating them all in my mind, and thus suffering from them. So, we decided to put effort into just being there. We stopped complaining. We stopped demanding or even thinking and wishing about being somewhere else. We began to put energy into our practice, getting up early, doing exercises to keep warm. And we even began to feel much better. Everything around us was the same, but we learnt not to create problems within ourselves over those difficulties. When you have high expectations for yourself, thinking you have to be Superman or Wonder Woman, then of course you don't have much metta, because only very seldom can we live up to such a high standard. You become doubtful of yourself. Maybe I'm not good enough. By practicing metta towards yourself, you can stop doing that. You begin to forgive yourself for making mistakes, for giving into weaknesses. That doesn't mean you rationalize things away, but rather that you do not go on creating problems or dwelling in aversion on the faults you have and the mistakes you have made. So by applying the practice of metta inwardly, we can become a lot more peaceful within ourselves and with the conditions of our minds and bodies. We become more mindful and aware, more awake to the way things are. Wisdom begins to arise, and we can see how we create unnecessary problems all the time by just following the momentum of habit. Metta means a little more than just kindness. It's a penetrating kindness, a kind awareness. Metta means we can coexist peacefully in a kindly way with sentient beings, both those voices and personae within us and with beings outside. It doesn't mean liking them. Some people go to that extreme. They say, I love my weaknesses because they're really me. I wouldn't be me if I didn't have my wonderful weaknesses. That's silly. 
Matter is being patient, being able to coexist with the pests of our minds rather than trying to annihilate them. Our society is very much one which annihilates pests, both inwardly and outwardly, wanting to create an environment where there are no pests. I've heard monks say, I can't meditate because there are too many mosquitoes. If only we could get rid of them. You may never really like the mosquitoes, but you can have metta for them, respecting their right to exist and not getting caught up in resentment at their presence. Similarly, if I have metta for the depressed mood of the moment and allow it to be there, recognizing it and not demanding that it not be there, it will go. Feelings like these arise naturally and go away. We make them stay longer because we keep wanting them to go. The struggle of trying to get rid of something we do not like seems to make it last longer than it would otherwise. The more we try to control nature, to manipulate it according to our greed and desire, the more we end up polluting the whole earth. People are becoming really worried now because we can see so much pollution from all the chemicals and pesticides we use try to try to get rid of the things in nature that we don't want. When we try to annihilate the pests in our minds, we end up with pollution too. We have a nervous breakdown and then the pests come back stronger than ever. Our modern society does not encourage much matter towards the old, the sick and the dying. Our society is very much oriented towards youth and vigor, being fast and staying young for as long as possible. When you grow old, you seem useless. You can't do anything very well. You're slow. You're no longer attractive, so people don't really want to know you. Many old people feel they have no place in society. They grow old and are cast aside as useless people. Our society also treats the intellectually handicapped and the mentally ill in this way. We try to keep them away so that we don't have to look at them and know that they're around. But trying to ignore the facts of life such as death, infirmity and old age results in an increasing amount of mental illness, mental breakdown and alcoholism. In schools in the United States, we try to put all the intelligent students with high IQs together in one class and the slower ones in another. We did not want the intelligent students to be slowed down by the halting progress of the slow ones. I think the most important thing the intelligent can learn is to be kind and patient towards those who are not as intelligent or as quick as they are. When we're forced to compete with our own kind, life becomes hectic and frustrating. Kindness, patience and compassion are much more helpful qualities for knowing how to live in the world and getting first prize and coming first in the class. Feeling that we always have to strive and compete to survive makes us neurotic and miserable. Those who can't compete feel inferior and just drop out. We have frustration and unfulfillment among both the gifted and the not-so-gifted because metta has never been considered important. When we practice metta, we begin to be willing to learn from termites and ants, from people who are slow, from the old, sick and dying. We become willing to take time out, to take care of somebody who is ill, and that takes patience. We become willing to take time out of our busy lives to help and be with somebody who is dying. We become willing to try to contemplate and understand dying. This is the direction we must take to create a really humane and good society. But before we can start making great changes in society, we have to start with ourselves, having metta for the conditions of our minds and bodies. We can have metta for the disease when we're ill. That doesn't mean that we're going to help the disease to stay longer, or that we should, we should not have an injection of penicillin because we're having metta for all the little germs infecting us. It means not dwelling in aversion to the discomfort and the weakness of our bodies when they're ill. We can learn to meditate on the fevers, fatigue, bodily pain and aches that we all experience. We don't have to like them. All we need to do is take the time to endure them and try to understand them, rather than just resenting them. When we do not have metta, we tend just to react to those conditions with the desire to annihilate, and the desire to annihilate always takes us to despair. We keep on recreating all the time the conditions for despair in our minds when we just try to annihilate all that we do not like and do not want. Living in a Buddhist monastery is good training for learning to live with people. As a layman, I had some control over my associates, keeping close to certain friends with whom I liked to be and staying away from anyone I did not like. But in the monastery, I had no choice. I had to live with whoever, whoever was there, whether I liked them or not. 
So sometimes I had to live with people I didn't like or found irritating and annoying. That was good for me, because I began to understand people I would never have taken the time to understand otherwise. If I had had a choice, I would not have lived with some of those people. But as that choice was not available, I learned to be more sensitive and open. I learned to have metta and allow people to be as they are, rather than always trying to force them to change, forcing them to be as I would like them, or trying to get rid of them. Wisdom arises when we begin to accept all the different beings, both within ourselves and outside, rather than always trying to manipulate things so that they're convenient and pleasant for us all for us all the time, so that it, so that we do not have to be confronted with irritating and troublesome people and situations. Let's face it, the world is an irritating place. I learned from my own experience how frustrating life is when I have ideas of how I want it to be. So I began to look at my own suffering, rather than just trying to control everything according to my desires. Instead of making requests and demands or trying to control everything, I began to flow with life, and that was much easier in the long run than all the manipulation that I used to do. We can still be fully aware of imperfections and not dismiss them or be irresponsible. The practice of metta means we don't create problems around them by dwelling in aversion. We can allow ourselves to flow with life. Our experience of life sometimes isn't very pleasant, enjoyable or beautiful. At other times it's all of these. That's the way life is. The wise person can always learn from both extremes, not attaching to either and not creating problems, but coexisting peacefully with all conditions. This is a perennially um, useful theme. Uh, over and over again, <clears throat> in your position, like myself, the, in the invited to, to teach, or people come and ask for advice, uh, over and over and over again, there is this uh, dynamic of I've got the problem with X. I'm angry with my um, my children not being respectful, or I feel jealous that my ex husband is now marrying somebody else um, how can I get rid of this feeling of jealousy how can I have love towards my children when I get angry that they're so disrespectful and <laughs> difficult and uh, yeah, it's a dozen a hundred different different kind of modes that this takes and uh, so this is uh, I'm, I'm quoting basically from this, this talk and this advice that Lumpur Sumedha would give um, over and over and over again how um, it's not what we feel like. We have this model of uh, the perfect me would never be jealous of anybody, or the perfect me would always would uh, I would always have total love for my for my children, or I would always be kind and patient, peaceful and wise, and, and calm and skillful, <laughs> not proud and demanding in nature. You know? That we have these this idea of the perfect me would be like that, peaceful and peaceful and wise and calm and so on. And then we, so we create this abstracted image of ourself and then uh, then compare what we're feeling with that perfect image, the image of the perfect me, and then feel like we're falling short. I mean, I've got to get rid of this anger problem or this jealousy problem or this fear problem or this, um, <clears throat> these, uh, these doubts so that uh, and once I've got rid of them, then they'll be me. They'll be the me without the anger, me without jealousy, me without the, the problems. But it never really works that way because just as, as Lumpur says you know, several times, you know, three or four, four or five times in the course of this one talk, you know, the more you try and push those things out of the way and get rid of them, you empower them. You, know, you, you strengthen them by the very fact of, I want to get rid of that. And so uh, what is such helpful advice I found for myself and uh, I, I pass it on over and over again is rather than trying to climb over the anger to get to the place where there's me without anger or me without fear or me without jealousy, that it's, uh, <clears throat> it's uh, more helpful to, to uh, cultivate this quality of metta for that very emotion. So having metta for the anger, metta for your jealousy, metta for your confusion and your doubts. And um, that, uh, and as he says again over and over in this, this talk, it's not a matter of liking or saying, oh, my, my, my anger is a wonderful thing or, you know, I'm really so glad that I'm filled with doubts and, and I, I think I should cultivate more jealousy. It'll really help things along. 
uh, you know, it's not it's not a kind of stupid uh, approach like that. But as uh, as he points out, it's recognizing that uh, <clears throat> that's that's a, a a quality that's present. This this anger is present. It's what's here. It's what's arisen. It's this feeling of jealousy or fear or negativity, uh, whatever the the, the afflicted uh, emotional state might be. So you're not condoning it, you're not, you're not feeding it, but you're recognizing anger exists in nature. Yeah, it's a, we have a mind, we have a body, so the, this, the system is capable of creating uh, fear, or anger, or jealousy, or greed, selfishness. Yeah. That's part of the, the program. <laughs> so because there's a mind, there's a body, then those things are going to be experienced. And... Uh, this is such helpful advice because we we tend to live from this this idea of like we create this abstracted image of ourself and then and then uh, compare ourselves with that with that sort of abstracted perfect me who doesn't really exist <laughs> and that the and then the way we are always falls short and so I feel Lumpur Sumedho articulates it in such a clear and, and direct way it's so it's, it's so helpful. Uh, that we, rather than creating an ideal picture of me, sort of that's that's over there, and um, trying to uh, become that perfect me, that instead we we look at what's here. <laughs> we look at the 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 flow of feelings and perceptions. Yeah, both uh, acknowledging the, the difficult and painful ones, but also acknowledging and accepting the, the wholesome and beautiful qualities. Sometimes it's more difficult to accept you and to acknowledge your goodness and the fact that you're a kind person, that you're a generous and unselfish person. That, that can be harder, especially for English people. <laughs> that you're a, you're a, 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 a that you're actually a good person. It feels like oh, I can't say that. Oh dear, no. Because it feels like you're being inflated, or, or that you're being you're going to create conceit or pride within yourself, but and so in a way that, as you said, feeling you're being honest by dwelling on all your faults, <laughs> um, and uh, trying to get rid of them. But uh, this this simple process of having metta, for particularly for the, uh, well, he's pointing out here that these negative emotions or difficult qualities. Uh, in a, well, the way I like to phrase it is to say to recognize that that has its place in nature. Selfishness, fear, greed, jealousy, they, 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 they exist. They're part of the natural order. You're not saying it's a fine and beautiful thing or that your, your violence and selfishness is a, a grand and glorious thing. <laughs> no, it just, it's, you're recognizing I have the capacity to feel violent. I have the capacity to feel fear or jealousy or, or anxiety. Yeah, that's part of the system. So you're recognizing that this is part of nature. But in that recognition and acceptance of it as part of nature, you're also, uh, in a way, developing the insight into not-self. You're recognizing, oh yeah, well, it's, uh, this, is, this is a human life. And so that we experience these different things. So this is all part of the deal. We have the uh, we have the, the, the neocortex and all our high-minded thoughts and concepts, and we have the reptile brain, which says, mine, back off, yeah, more, <laughs> kill. Yeah, that, that is the kind of monosyllabic reptile brain. of The, the, the precepts are there to help get a, yeah, keep us a, give us a perspective on. But that's part of our, our life. You know, just, look at the, just looking at the embryology of it, looking at the... Just the the physiology of how we're made up, and our our uh, instinctual processes are very basic. You know, they really are. I mean, I'm, make, I'm putting on a sort of silly voice, but that's what we feel. Like, Mine, back off. You know, it's my apple. <laughs> You're trying to frighten the other person because there's both of you going for the you know for the the apples at the breakfast time, and so it's like you know the hyenas around the wildebeest. Like, no, I'm the <laughs> I'm the top dog, back off. Yeah, it's my apple, venerable sir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we do it in kind of coded ways, but basically what we're saying is, that's my apple, back off, or, you've, you know, or you're, you're for it. So it's to recognize those forces are at play within us and not to be frightened of them or pretend they're not there or feel that we're somehow some sort of sick being because we feel uh, aggressive and territorial over an apple 
uh, on the on the um, server at breakfast time. But just recognize, oh look at that, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm showing my thanks <laughs> to my my brother in the holy life over over bre- you know what's what's available for breakfast. Yeah, and then at that moment you are just like a hyena going at the wildebeest, and you're saying, you know, I'm the top dog, back off. Um, and that's you know, in that moment you reckon, you reckon, well, that's part of our animal heritage. Yeah, that's we can feel that kind of stuff. We don't have to be dominated by that. We don't have to praise it and think what a wonderful thing, or you know, or be uh, putting that in charge of our life. But recognizing, oh, look at that. <laughs> yeah, that's my terror. Or somebody moves our cushion. You know. Yeah, it's my Zafu. You know, we're ready to sort of get physical over somebody's moving. Somebody's moved your cushion, or you're, you're, or you're taking your favorite blanket from the from the cupboard. You know? And uh, just to be able to see those those forces at work. Oh, look at that! Isn't that interesting? How that how that is? So we're we're in a way looking at our own life as as. Uh, the different patterns of nature that are involved. And so metta, when I'm talking about um, metta practice, just as Lumpur does here, rather than than having it as a kind of stylized sequence of, of um, phrases that you use, and oftentimes metta, metta bhavana is taught in that way, that you go through this whole list of beings, may I be well, may I be happy, may my family be well, may they be happy, may the, those that I love be well and happy, you know, may the, the people that I'm indifferent to, may they be well and happy, may the people who are, who are averse to me uh, also be well and happy, kind of going through a, like a laundry list of different beings, you know, or, or you can use a sort of geographical method. So oftentimes metta bhavana is taught in this sort of very systematic and, and kind of verbal way, so going through lists of beings, either different categories of beings or different so spreading out meta geographically. Uh, but I feel the way that Lumpur Sumedha talks about it here is far more useful. And, and virtually every every retreat that um, I, I lead, um, pretty much on the first evening or first day, you know, first day of the retreat, I'll talk about using meta in this way, rather than as a separate practice uh, distinct from developing concentration and, and insight i try to present metta as being a, a, the underpinning or the foundation for for all all dhamma practice because if if we don't really have metta for all of our mind states and the, also the uh, the people around us and the uh, the events of our day if, we, if there isn't that kind of acceptance well, this is the way things are, whether you like it or you don't like it, here it is, <laughs> then it's really impossible to develop any kind of concentration or insight if there isn't that basis of metta. Because if if there is that kind of um, partiality, like I don't want this, this thought to be here, I don't want this mind state to be here, I don't want this doubt to be here, I don't want this fear to be here, You've got to get rid of you, then I can concentrate, then you've, all, you've got a fight going on in your mind, you're trying to banish all the stuff that you don't like. Whereas the way and the way I like to talk about metta is, you know, I use simple examples like di- directions on the r- the road. Like I say, you go down to Great Gadsden. If you want to go to Hemel, turn right. If you want to go to Leighton Buzzard, turn left. It's not like the road to Leighton Buzzard is evil, and the road to Hemel is good. It's just, if you want to go to Hemel, you take a right. It's not like that the road to Leighton Buzzard is evil and awful and bad, it's just it won't get you to the place where you want to go. <laughs> so similarly, when we meet with different mind states, then if you if what arises is, say, fear or uh, anger or um, selfishness, then you realize, well, that's the road to Leighton Buzzard. I, I don't want <laughs> to go there. <laughs> and uh, instead, you see that there's... The quality of patience and kindness and focus and concentration, compassion, um, that's going to go to where you want to go. So you, you take a right, you turn right. So it's not like this is wonderful and good and I've got to keep it, or that road to Leighton Buzzard is evil and awful and should be destroyed. It's ridiculous. And so I feel it's, it's far more helpful to look at the, our mind states in that simple, practical, down to earth way. It's like, well, it's got, Leighton Buzzard's got a perfect right to be there. We don't have to bomb it. You know, I, was, I was using this as an example in a retreat, and at the end of the retreat, this woman said to me, I come from Leighton Buzzard, actually. 
it's all right, we don't need to bomb it, you know. It's, it's actually quite, it's quite a nice town. <laughs> but uh, if you're using this example to say, oh yeah, well that's, that's got a perfect, you know, my, the angry feelings or jealous feelings or territorial feelings, they've got a perfect right to be there. They're part of the natural order. My capacity to be violent or selfish, fine, it's, it's there. But that's not a direction I want to go in. I, I'm not, I need to go to Hamlet. I don't want to go to, to Leighton Buzzard. So you, just, you know the road is there, you just don't take it. So you don't have to fear it, you don't have to be averse to it. You just recognize, okay, that road's going in a direction that I don't want to go, so you, you go the other way. So and that's how I, I, I feel that's the, the way that Lumpur is presenting it here is, is exactly like that. So there's this very practical and straightforward way of relating to that. And, that, and I use the, the phraseology uh, radical acceptance. Uh, he was using not dwelling in aversion. And he developed that phrase in a, the first year or so he was in England because of this issue with the English people not liking the kind of meta practice. So they... As soon as you start talking about may all beings be happy, this kind of <laughs> tension we come into the shrine room in Hampstead. So he said, well, "Okay, let's just work on not being averse. Let's talk about not dwelling in aversion." <laughs> no one can do that. People could do that, but uh, because it, it did, and I think that's a, that's a very good point because people did feel there was this kind of smarmy sentimentality, like a sort of Walt Disneyish version of reality, like thinking pink. You're sort of <coughs> spraying this layer of sugar frosting over everything. It's like, Ugh. And that feeling of this is really false. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's quite common to, it wasn't not just in England, it's also in the States. I remember one, uh, one person, a um, friend of ours, who did a, a whole day, a meditation day long at a local um, Buddhist center. And uh, the theme of the day long was, I hate metta. <laughs> And it was the whole the, the whole theme of the day was like as soon as someone says, you know, may all beings be happy, just notice that. <laughs> that kind of uh, I you know, that's being told to be nice or that uh, trying to, to um cover up uh, everything with a sort of a veneer of, of pink sweetness instantly brings up you know aversion and negativity. And so it's quite common if you do it's not not uncommon if you do lead a guided meta meditation. People will say, "I was having a great retreat, Ajahn, until you did that meta meditation. I got so angry, <laughs> so annoying." So uh, this this uh, it's a skill that we can develop, and it, and it takes some some effort um, because, as you said, you're not justifying or or um, condoning your own shortcomings and unskillful habits. Not saying it's a wonderful thing, but you reckon, but that 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 skill of recognizing, well, this this has its its place in the natural order; it belongs. And then, okay, but I just choose not to pick it up and follow it. And that's a skill that that we can develop. That recognizing, yeah, it's here. Now, can I not pick that up? Can I not be afraid of it? Can I not reject it? Can I just recognize that's a turning I don't want to take, and then leave it alone? And <clears throat> so. But in the in developing the practice, I feel that's really that's a crucial skill to develop, where we can um, we can see you know, really un- unwholesome, un- unskillful mind states, and not be intimidated by that, and say, "Well, that's pretty horrible." Okay, fine. <laughs> just, <laughs> let's just leave that aside, and, and uh, to uh, to not to not make anything more of it. As he said, not to complicate that. And then just to go back to maybe the last thing to say is to go back to having metta for our own goodness, acknowledging our own goodness. And this is, I, I talk about this um, fairly fairly often because, again, in the West, when you, when you are, say, <coughs> looking at your, your own goodness or you know, um, reflecting on your own good qualities, it seems like you're trying to be inflated or you're conceited. What a wonderful person I am! Look at me, I'm glorious. Uh, but there, there's one of the the recollections that the Buddha gives, um, along like with uh, Buddhana, recollections of the Buddha, the Dhamma and Sangha, or recollections on death, Maranusati or Buddhanusati, Dhammanusati, Sanghanusati. You have Chaganusati, and Chaganusati is a recollection of your own goodness. 
So the Buddha actively encourages us to, to bring to mind our own goodness, to reflect on the good things that we've done. And, uh, and but not for the purpose of making us more in, inflated or proud or like I've you know I've made such a lot of merit and I'm such a good person and not even comparing yourself to other people, but simply um, by recognizing the those wholesome qualities in exactly the same way as if they belong to somebody else. You know, <laughs> not taking it in a personal way, but like oh what a man, well, yeah, well, isn't it a wonderful thing that some people you know I was patient in that difficult situation somebody was getting very upset and I, I i put down what i was doing and i spent time with them and it really helped what a wonderful thing that people can do that not like oh i'm such a good person you know i you know i scored a lot of points with that one <laughs> but more oh that that's a beautiful thing to have done that really helped that was a that was a fine and, and noble kindly act and acknowledging that the goodness, and then when when that is that goodness is acknowledged, and and received in the same way, there's that same kind of acceptance of it, and also, ex- you know, there's the recognition of the good result that comes from that, that uh, uh, in a way, acknowledging the the bright result that comes from from wholesome action, uh, the, the um, so that punya or the what we call the merit or the blessings. That's the, the, in a way, the result of good karma is that feeling of, of punya, is that, that uh, quality of inner brightness. So when we reflect on our own goodness and our own kindly actions, then it brings that, it brings up that kind of brightness. And, and it's not just self-respect, it's, a, it's a, also a kind of effulgence, a, an inner joyfulness. So that, uh, and, and as the Buddha said, that um, punya is another word for happiness. And uh, there's a short discourse in the Itivuttaka where the where the Buddha says, "Don't belittle, don't look down on punya. Don't think this is a kind of lower sort of, or inferior kind of uh, quality or an inferior practice." As punya is another word for happiness. You know, punya uh, is is to be um, developed and and is, is worthy of of cultivation. So, as I said, some people find it more difficult to recognize their own good qualities and their bad qualities. Much happier making a long list of everything that's wrong with me than, <laughs> but it, it uh, is a helpful thing, and to uh, to see that when when that is done, that the 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 beautiful result that comes from that, just acknowledging, and particularly if you're very self-critical, if you have tend to have a very negative self-view, uh, <clears throat> then to and your mind is dwelling on all of your faults then to um to it's a little exercise i encourage uh, to uh to, for people to do is to say so if you were your best friend and your best friend came up to you and and uh and said oh, i'm such a terrible person because you know i've done this and i've done this and i've done this and i, and I, and I keep thinking like that like that yeah if if you if you were your best friend and you came up to you and 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 uh, your best friend gave you this long list of of uh, all their shortcomings and and crimes, what would your what's your first reaction? If you get the picture, of what I'm saying, and and every single time when I encourage anybody to do this exercise, every single time they said the first thought is one of forgiveness and compassion. Oh, don't, it's not that bad. You know, don't worry. <laughs> If you do that as a as a mental exercise, you're far more able to forgive other people for their shortcomings than you are yourself. So, uh, if you get if you get the drift of what I'm saying, like if if uh, if you just run that as a little thought experiment, it's a kind of pocket version of, gish, of a kind of gestalt therapy exercise. <laughs> if you uh, <coughs> if you just uh, if you were your best friend and and uh, you just listen to that litany of, of wrongdoings, immediately what comes up is, oh, don't worry, it's not that bad, don't be so hard on yourself, have a cup of tea, it's all right. You know, immediately the, the mind moves towards forgiveness, kindness, consolation. I've never, ever, ever had anyone say that what arose in them was, yeah, right, let me tell you another thing. <laughs> never, it doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for the day when it does, and I'll, I'll maybe change my, my method, but... Uh, so far, every time when anybody does that, people are quite surprised that, uh, oh yeah, right, it's, it's, without a second thought, the mind moves towards compassion, forgiveness, and 
and, and kindness. So I think that's enough for me rabbiting on. So if there's some particular questions or comments. Yes. Good evening. Good evening, yes. All these qualities, uh, happiness, that you speak about happiness and meta, uh, when uh, in theoretical way, it's very, very inspiring. But after in practical, is we we ask to everybody in this room who want to be happy. Everybody is going to say, "I want to be happy," because it's the rational answer. Mm-hmm. But after you give, when the people with suffering coming and ask you for advice and say, "Oh, do some meditation, or do this, or do that, or avoid that." attachment to that and the people after one week come back and say I still suffer well you didn't do the meditation you didn't do the, that and look like the people is attached to suffering they like suffering in some way <laughs> so because in some way we are not rational we are emotional and what happened is I, I saw one thing, I start to think about that. Why? And it's because when you have a pain, you scratch yourself mm-hmm. and you get some endorphins. Mm-hmm. So you get some pleasure, physical pleasure, mm-hmm. no? sensual pleasure. Mm-hmm. When you have a fire, when your girlfriend, you know that two days after, you're going to get a, a, lot, a lot of pleasure, emotional and physical pressure in the reconciliation. So, in some way, we attach to the suffering mm-hmm. to get some sensual pleasures. In some way. In some ways. Yeah. In some way. So, I look in some solutions. No? <laughs> some solution for this. I, I was thinking, what is the solution? No? I I always looking for solution for for the Buddha's teaching. No? And I find a very good solution that. Uh, the unconditional mind, no? the unconditional mind to the physical reactions. No? You know, I, I go to unconditional my mind to this physical reaction, so I can separate a little bit this world. But uh, the thing that I, I find is that uh, I cannot unconditional my mind totally, because if I condition, unconditional my mind, I die, because the breathing is a condition, for example. So, can you make some <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's quite a few things in there. Well, one, yeah, Ajahn Chah was a he was a master of coming up with little brief statements, like short short statements, short things that he said that that capture very very clearly certain truths. So one of these, as you were speaking, came to mind where he said, uh, "Everybody wants happiness." But nobody likes to create the causes of happiness. Nobody likes suffering, but everybody likes to create the causes of suffering. So you can sit on that for the rest of the week. <laughs> so that's part of it, is that, um, that we, <clears throat> we like the things that cause dukkha. You know, like <clears throat> to attack the things that we don't like, to chase after the things that we do like. We enjoy that. You know, that that's, there's there's a, a, a gratification in that. But then we don't realize as we're doing that that we're creating the causes of suffering. The causes of, of, uh, of happiness, you know, letting go of, sel- of selfish attitudes, uh, it's hard to do, it's hard work. And... And we don't like that because it grates against the ego. We're like, but I want it. No, I can't stand it. And what about me? <laughs> There's a friction there. But we like the result. <laughs> we, we, uh, even though we, we don't like the, uh, the cause. So that's part of it. Um, I think also from what you were saying, how people are attached to their suffering, it's, it's very true. Because... Uh, when you have a problem, then it defines your being. 
And we like that. We've got a, a nice clear issue. Like I'm focused. <laughs> That's the problem. I've got this uh, <clears throat> this illness, or I've got this project, or I've got this competition, I've got this enemy, I've got this uh, conflict. And so even though on one level it's difficult, we like it because it's uh, it gives us a kind of focal point. I mean, I hate to say it, but in this country, people really liked it when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister because she was so hateable. Yeah, yeah the, all of the Liberals, like in America, it was the same with George Bush. The, the Liberals kind of loved to hate him. So, you know, people got a huge, it was an automatic gratification to insult George Bush. George, you know, George W. Bush was even more extreme. And so it was uh, the... Um, when he got re-elected, one of the local Dharma teachers in, in San Francisco area is also a comedian and a radio, um, uh, kind of has his own radio program, is a comedian called Wes Niska. And he, and, I, and uh, so for the, mostly for the liberals in the Bay Area, which there's a lot of sort of liberal lefty types in San Francisco area, it was a sort of day of lamentation when George W. Bush got re-elected. But Wes had this comment, well, another another great four years for the satirists, <laughs> because George Bush was such an easy target. It's like it's so easy to hate and make fun of, and so you know we we like something that makes that even though we we say we don't like a broken leg or we don't like a fatal disease, you know we it gives us a focus. There was a very interesting um, incident that happened here about 20 years ago, when I was living here in the in the uh, late 80s. There was an American Anagarika who came here, and he was just diagnosed as being HIV positive before he came. He would already was, was on his way over. And so um, he arrived, and um, so he immediately had to get sort of locked into the, the British... Um, health system and organized treatment for him in London he was going down every month to to the um, to the hospital and a very sincere fellow and very uh, very very kind and and, uh, um, committed Dharma practitioner so he'd been here for about four or five months maybe six months and uh, I was having tea with the guests in the, the room at the end here, and then uh, he arrived back from London at the end of the afternoon. It's kind of about this time, about six thirty, quarter to seven, and, and um, the tea time conversation was winding up. And, and this Anagarika Philip was his name came in, and uh, and he looked really grim. That really, and I thought, oh dear, it must be terrible news, because his his condition was was holding steady. He wasn't it wasn't degenerating. And um, but he and uh, whenever he went and, and got, had his tests and got treated, there there was always it was always a bit indecisive and unclear about how the disease was progressing or what the what treatment they should follow. And it was you know it was a bit. Uh, uh, it was also the early days of the AIDS epidemic. So anyway, um, uh, so I waited till everybody had gone. Uh, so I said, so what what's the news from the hospital? Uh, Philip and he said, says, well, it's not good. And I have no idea what's this going to be. He said, I lost my story. I said, what? He says, I've lost my story. I don't have. I, I don't have HIV. I've got. I've got an immune disease, and it means I have a kind of low-level colds and flu you know, for the rest of my life. But I don't have HIV, and I'm not going to die of this. And he still looked really grim. I said, well, that's great. That's great. He says, no, Ajahn, you don't understand. I've lost my story. And I, it was very insightful because he had become aware, you know, and he was a very bright guy, he was sort of reflecting, like, he had become so identified of being, like, I'm, a, I'm a victim, I've got this terrible disease, I'm going to die. You know? and, um, but I'm okay, you know, I'll practice... And he had this whole kind of inner drama going on about the, having this fatal illness and he was going to be like you know, other friends in the States who's going to be dead in four or five years' time. And he became suddenly aware of how much he was invested in that. Oh, so tragic to die so young and this terrible disease there's no cure for. And then he lost his story. And so he was grieving 
the loss of his story. But he also had the wisdom to recognize that was what was happening. So uh, that was, it was a very interesting conversation. And um, so that uh, I felt that was, that was a, really, a really good example of how we, we, our, our suffering can be my most cherished possession. And that when it's taken away from us, oh no, when, we, when you haven't got a problem anymore, when the problem gets solved or the debt gets paid off, the house finally gets finished. Oh, I've got to live with you, have I? <laughs> the project's over? Oh dear. <laughs> it works with monastery development as well. You know, so not just singling out householders. But, <laughs> so, but that, we, we like that definition. It's also why people like, like, you know, like adventure sports or, or they like to go you know, hang gliding or, or climbing up vertical cliffs. Because you get very, very focused. All there is is that, you know, that half inch of ledge and your toes. But you're extremely focused at that point. And we like that, even though it's life-threatening. So that kind of, and uh, uh, what you're saying, that dynamic, it's very important to understand that. And that quality of undefined being is, ter- is terrible. It's, it's death to the ego. What, who am I if I haven't got my problem? <laughs> so we quickly hunt for another problem or a project or something to get involved in. Then I can feel like there's a me existing in relationship to that. So uh, I'm not sure about the gratification element of it. Like You, know, <laughs> you have a fight so that you know, the best part of breaking up is when you're making up again, you know, as they said in the pop song. Before many people's time, <laughs> but uh, that, yeah, but that basically that dynamic of of preferring a problem and a difficulty, the more unrequitable, the better. Some kind of the something that can't be fixed. It's great because otherwise you have the problem of getting what you want, <laughs> and then. <laughs> You're left in this undefined, but that it's but that quality, even though it can be very threatening, and it feels like we have to rush away from that if we can. It's in in a, in a different way. It's our greatest friend because it's only threatening to the ego. But when that when we we sort of don't relate to things from a, a ego centered perspective, then. That that quality of 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 not uh, being in contention with anything or not lacking anything—that's it's the experience of fullness. It seems so. It seems like death to the ego, but it's actually if you if you listen to your heart at that point, there's a great quality of of wonderment and and freedom. But the the ego is like oh, I, don't, I don't like this. <laughs> Because it's out of a job and it wants to find something to to give it some definition again. So, in terms of of working with that, it it's there's a kind of barrier that you need to go through of that kind of flailing of the ego, like but 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 but, but I I want I gotta eat something or do something or go somewhere or relate to someone or something, and you really don't care what. <laughs> But just to be able to, to listen to that, to feel that and recognize, okay, this is just the ego flailing. It's like the, you know, the, the tyrant being deposed or Margaret Thatcher being <laughs> asked to step down. <laughs> There's a kind of desperation. But just to let, to let that pass through and then once that passes, then to notice what remains is the quality of tremendous freedom and wonderment. It's a kind of delightful quality. I see that it's very interesting in your work, but uh, I, in, as well, uh, in other side, I want to uh, your comments about what is the link, uh, because uh, look like sometimes we are jokings of ourselves, uh, well, looking the gratification, physical gratification. I speak more about the physical gratification, mm-hmm. the endorphins. 
Mm -hmm. Looking for inconscience yeah. for physical gratification. That's the drug of choice. Yes. Uh, we look like we are junkies of ourselves. That's exactly. I use that same phrase. Um, yeah. <laughs> how how we can be not junkies of ourselves? I mean. Uh, that's what that's what we're doing here. Yeah, <laughs> we're getting off the drug. Yeah, that's that's what a monastery is for. This is a detox program. <laughs> really, I'm not kidding. I did a whole ten day retreat. Uh, I think I, Sister Tisara was. Are you on that retreat? Chittapala, <laughs> yes, she was there. I did a whole ten day retreat on this theme on the. Dependent origination and the cycles of addiction. And the, the basic addiction is bhava tanha, the, 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 that, the thrill of becoming. And it's, and it's interesting. Speaking of endorphins, if you, if you know a little brain chemistry, <coughs> the, the, the moment of maximum thrill, when the, the, what's they call the endorphin flush, the, the, the largest quantity of endorphins, they, they land on, they, they're released and they land on this part of the brain called the lateral tegmentum. So as the endorphins hit the lateral tegmentum, that is the whoomph, the yes. That's, that's what, that's the drug. And that can come from meditation experience, it can come from seeing some attractive person, it can come from the perfect cheesecake, it can come from scratching an itch, it can come from you know, bemoaning a, 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 a broken leg. Oh, poor me! But it's all right. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, it's the same. It's the same endorphins. It's the same stuff. And we and that that's the drug of choice. We love that as the endorphins hit. So that's the drug we have to get off. And uh, when the Buddha was first enlightened, if if you think about it, and well, the the picture as it appeared to him after his enlightenment was like. I'm the only person, I'm the only living being who's off the drug. So he was on a, you know, there weren't seven billion people on the planet at that point, but there's you know, lots of other living beings. But, so he, he realized, has this realization, I'm the only living being in this, this realm, or any realm, who's fully enlightened. I'm the only one who's not, I'm the only non-addict in an entire universe full of addicts. I'm the only one who's not hooked on the stuff. So his first thought was, there's no point trying to get all other beings off, off the stuff. And so his first thought was, I'll just go and be a hermit. <laughs> there's no point trying to convey this because it's everywhere. Every, every being is addicted to this becoming, bhava. And uh, there's no point even trying. It's just too difficult. It's, it's too vast. It's impossible. And then... The, the the way that Dhamma talks are invited, the Brahma Chaloka Dipati, that little verse that Anagarikas usually recite. That's the record that that's a repetition of the invitation from the Brahma Sahampati, saying, Please, Venerable Sir, for the sake of those beings who have just a little bit of dust in their eyes, you know, please teach the the, the Dhamma that you understand because there are some who will be able to to grasp the meaning and who will be able to be liberated like there are some people who are not as so as addicted to, as others <laughs> that will be able to get off the stuff and then the Buddha listened to that and then decided to teach but it, that's how I see that, that picture it's like you, you realize you're the only you're the only being on the planet who's not hooked on the, on the stuff the only non-junkie and you're going to help this entire planet full of, of addicts it's a daunting task, <laughs> but that's that's what monasteries are for, and that's what, that's what you're. I would say that's what we're all doing here is getting off the stuff, and you know, in all our various different particular channels of addiction, whether we're addicted to ideas, or addicted to cheesecake, or addicted to human company, or addicted to self hatred, <laughs> yeah, whatever it might be, we all have our own particular specialities, uh, but. It's a recognizing where those those attachments are, and slowly getting off the stuff, learning to to. Uh, Is that problem to be addicted to uh, happiness? Yeah, it can be. Mm -hmm. 
you name it, it's, it, uh, it's, uh, you can be attached to it. Okay, one more, yeah. Um, you mentioned that the, the English and the Americans are very averse to meta, the practice of meta, or feeling from the idea, the concept of feeling like yourself is, is bad. What do you think this has to do with a, you know, the Christian culture? Whether you're a Christian or not, mm-hmm. you know, if you live in the West, brought up in a Christian culture. Um, um, Christianity has a negative attitude of thinking good of ourselves. Mm-hmm. This is selfish. This is yes. blah, blah, blah. And this is, you know, why you get this reaction and causes all sorts of problems. <laughs> yes, it does. It's a, well, the the uh, this a whole Judeo-Christian. Yeah. So it's nuanced by various things, like the idea, of the doctrine of original sin that was yeah. conjured up by Saint Augustine, and in the Jewish community, it's not—it's not really even theologically based. It's just family, <laughs> I'd say, <laughs> the kind of a guilt syndrome that uh, you're basically guilty. You're not quite sure of what, but you're guilty, you know. And it was this. Uh, there was this uh, uh, years ago at, at this Harmonia Mundi conference in Los Angeles. Somebody asked the Dalai Lama, it was a big kind of spiritual conference, and somebody asked the Dalai Lama about feelings of, of guilt and what to do about this persistent feelings of guilt and self-hatred. And, and His Holiness said, well, um, forgive me if this is being rude, but um, what, what have you done that you feel so guilty about? I mean, have you committed some crime or... You know, did you did you kill somebody in the war, or you know? And, this, and the fellow said, "No, no, 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 no. I'm I'm a I'm a very you know, honest person. I've never done anything like that. I just hate myself." <laughs> and so then the Dalai Lama kind of his English is pretty good, but he thought. So then he went into a huddle with his translator, Tupton Jinpa, <laughs> and Tupton Jinpa did a, a, a doctorate at Cambridge in Western philosophy, so he was fully acquainted with the Judeo-Christian um, thing to use the technical term. And so he went into a huddle, and while well, Tupton Jimpa gave him a sort of quick rundown on the, on the, uh, <coughs> the um, Judeo-Christian uh, self-hatred program, and then he sort of came out of his huddle and said, oh, this is most unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he, but he couldn't really imagine it. You know, it was hard to put himself in that position. In Buddhism, any mention of guilt? Well, if you have if you have done something that's that's unskillful, like if I've told you a lie, or I've uh, I've che- I've um, deliberately hurt you, then I feel I feel hiriotapa, uh, a sense of of shame. But that's that, but that's recognized as a, a spiritual maturity of that their recognition of if you, if I lie to you, that hurts me. That and that pain is a useful pain. So hiriotapa is taken as a, 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 a kind of great spiritual quality, but it's not personalized. It's not like I'm a tra- uh, you're not mm. building a sense of self out of it. It's regarded as a sort of negative thing. You want to really you act in a way to yourself. to free yourself from it. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not going to do you any good. Or, you know. Yeah, yeah uh, the uh, freedom from remorse, avipatisara, is a, a one of the uh, the, the like a a basis of the sense of well-being and, and happiness is avipatisara. And the way that you establish freedom from remorse is that you don't do unskillful things. It's the Buddhist program for developing a positive self-view. Don't do things that you'll regret, and then you won't have to regret them. <laughs> it's a very simplistic approach to, to, uh, to having a positive self-image. <laughs> but it's very, it is kind of very... Simple and, and straightforward in that way. Well, you, in, in the West, we do have these these doctrines like original sin. Also, when the, the King of Thailand was being interviewed by the BBC uh, years and years ago, there was a very interesting documentary, and and they asked him, you know, about what he saw as the difference between Western thinking and 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 uh, thinking in in Thailand, and, and he talked about this. He said, well. You have the doctrine of original sin, but in Buddhism we think more in terms of original purity. Yeah. So that you you 
your your whole set, your whole framework for the way that universe is arranged is is very very different. Or like I was thinking, I was quoting the other day in a Dhamma talk, um, Freudian psychology. You have quote I, I don't know, I can't remember the German of it if I ever knew it, but what he called the black tide of mud is the the id the the sort of fundamental nature of your being is what he referred to as the black tide of mud. The sort of these uh, <clears throat> primal forces, like the reptile brain, the sort of, that he saw that as the, the fundamental nature of our being is the the um, the reactivity and and uh, selfishness of the reptile brain. So, I'm sure, it sounds very gnarly in German, but the, <laughs> the black tide of mud as this sort of that's like when you look into your fundamental nature. That's at the very basis of our being. That's what you find. So, well, thanks very much for Sigmund. You know. But you know that was his experience. But the, the 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 Buddhist model is very different. Where yeah, you know, the, rather than the black tide of mud. I mean, nothing wrong with blackness or mud. You know, <laughs> but you know that kind of. Um, he's using those words to represent a kind of sort of stinky, fetid stuff down at the bottom of the pond. You know, <laughs> and uh, but instead you have the the Dhamma is. The uh, the quality at the the basis of everything, which gives you a very very different model. Well, that's why I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> I gave up on Freud. I had the the very the very first term uh, studying psychology at university, and um, the the le- in this this lecture. The, uh, um, they quoted Freud as saying, and this is like the, the, the I don't think it was the very first book of Freud's, but maybe it was the second one, like the interpretation of dreams. And he says something like, "The best that my method can do is to transform your neurotic misery into ordinary human unhappiness." <laughs> Again, I'm sure it sounds great in German. The very the best that my method can do is to transform your neurotic misery into ordinary human unhappiness. So when I heard that, something snapped. And, and I was a kind of confused, half-stoned 18-year-old. You know. But I, I, something just went, no, no, that's not right. You know. and so I immediately started arguing <laughs> with the lecturer. And I you know, couldn't base it on anything other than my own sort of random um, philosophizing thoughts and my own sort of feelings. But... Uh, it just seemed no. We can do better than that. That that can't be the that can't be the the most that humanity can look forward to. Was your lecturer a believer in Freudian Freudian school? To me, my view, you know, limited dealings with them. It's like a religious system, you know. Well, he he wasn't. I mean, he was a he was a lecturer in psychology, but he wasn't he wasn't a Freudian analyst, but. Uh, Certainly, he put it forward as a, a valid perspective, and he didn't um, didn't go along with my arguments because, of course, it was just m- me thinking. I couldn't back it up with anything other than it's my opinion, so it must be right, you know. <laughs> anyway, I think that's enough. Speaking of opinions, <laughs> must be about enough for this evening. Andamayang dhammagata sadhukarang dadamase sadhu sadhu sadhu